I'm thinking about Sarah's curiosity as to why things aren't going right, and and uh, my question is to Warren. Would you tell us your name? Uh, Debbie Greberash. The people who make the final management decisions have no emotional attachment to the forest and the flora and the fish and the fauna in it. There is no love, no fence to fish. But these officials that do not understand the public's desire to protect nature are cold-blooded. They don't care. Cold-blooded people only care about what they can get for themselves in their lifetime. Because they do not care about the aesthetics, beauty, clean water, wildlife, and their habitat. Uh, they're cold-blooded as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, Lauren, a long time ago you quoted something um, about uh, caring about something, about understanding something, and caring for it, and thereby trying to protect it. Could you give us that wonderful quote, please? <laughs> I, I think it was, we prep, protect what we love, we love what we understand, and we understand what we are taught. And I, I, I would, uh, just in reference to the cold-bloodedness of the individuals that you were talking about, that does a lot of discredit to the cold-blooded creatures like fish that I enjoy. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Next question, please. Uh, my name is Earl Stano. Could you uh, speak a little closer? Maybe you can raise the mic there. Maybe. Sure. Thanks. Sorry. Technologically challenged. I'd like to thank the presenters for making a very balanced presentation here tonight. It's interesting to know that there is a place for forest management, and yet there are management problems, and there's something we can't do about it. I have to admit that I wanted to be a forest ranger when I grew up, but I see now that my golden idol was tarnished. And it seems to me that the Forest Service is dedicated to making the, the eastern slopes what they once were, bare rock, bare device. But I did a little research, and the Forest Service apparently has something called operating ground rules that govern their uh, the way they the way they say they operate. But apparently, they don't quite follow them. I'm wondering if one of the presenters can uh, answer my question about whether they do have operating ground rules. Okay. Would you tell us your name before you leave the mic? Sorry, it's Earl Stanley. Thank you. Who wants to take that question? Well, I'll, I'll take a crack at it. it. Certainly, timber harvest operating ground rules are something that the Forest Service throws up. Whenever there's a question about whether or not there's an impact of logging, and the consistent answer is we have timber harvest operating ground rules that the timber industry follows. Ergo, they must be following them. Therefore, there is no problem. And I, I think when I think about timber timber harvest operating ground rules. How many of you have seen Pirates of the Caribbean? And there's that wonderful scene where the young lady is at the end of the gangplank, and she turns around to the pirate and says, is this against the pirate's code? And the pirate said, it's not really a code. They're more like a set of guidelines. And that's what I view the operating ground rules. When we hear the word rules, 
we have a connotation of that, but they're really a set of guidelines for which there are often variances issued, uh, more variances that you could possibly imagine by the Forest Service to the timber industry whenever the timber industry can't match them. Whenever I ask for the evaluation results of the operating ground rules to help me understand whether or not they're effective at meeting environmental goals, all I get is a series of mumbles. And I have yet to see a series of evaluations or monitoring of the operating ground rules that allows me to know whether or not they're an effective way for the Forest Service to provide detailed prescriptive uh, methods to the timber industry of operating and t harvesting timber in such a way that maintains water quality, protects biodiversity, and does all of the other things that apparently operating ground rules are allegedly supposed to do. Does anyone else want to kick in on that? Uh, yeah, I'd like to say something uh, more towards the nature that things are changing. Uh, just the fact that uh, the logging industry, especially Spray Lake Sawmills, has been hiring me and other biologists since uh, 2003 uh, and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in doing fire research on their FMA. And um, they're trying to get their certification from the Forest Stewardship Council. And um, the whole thing about the road density, for example, they're trying to change this because I'm, I'm telling them, okay, this is the distribution of, of fires historically. There were areas that used to get a lot of burning. So I'm telling them, don't go and log older forests because of fire suppression. Now all the young forests from the 1920s are now at least 100 years old. So if you're going to put your cut blocks, go put them in you know, young, what used to be young historically, which is now mature. So they are changing their practice, and they're also looking at... Uh, Make, I'm sure some people won't like this, but making their cut blocks bigger, but not big all in one, in one shot. Rather than having these blocks all over the place and having a bunch of roads, is start at one end of a watershed and just build from that one block. So limit the number of roads, stay perhaps on only one side of the, of the basin, and include island remnants within uh, the block and make these perimeters, these wiggly lines, so you don't you know visually they're more appealing. So I would say that things are changing, and uh, not every company is trying to do this, but I would say, no, I raise my hat first to Spray Lake Sawmills, that they are trying, they're making a big effort, and just the cut blocks in the castle, the reason why, you know, in my head was a bit, you know, what's the fuss about those uh, cut blocks is the fact that they put them over forest that, is, that dates from 1936. So in my mind already, it's like, okay, they're not in the subalpine, they're not in the old forest, so I was quite happy from, all, from that perspective uh, that, you know, the blocks were small and then they were over young, uh, young forests. So it's not all bad in, in my head. But I do respect, you know, the views of Sarah and Lauren. I think there's a lot of room for improvement. Uh, but, okay. uh, thank you, Mike. Yes, thank you. Sarah, do you want to add anything? Or shall we move on? Okay, next question, please. Hi, my name is John here uh, from the Crosses Pass. Um, I, um, terrific presentation by all of you, by the way. Um, I was quite taken back by that 1936 map um, that showed uh, how far it burned up and uh, never reaches the castle. Um, my question is this. Um, it's my understanding that if, if the castle was designated as a well in park, there would be no logging allowed. Is that correct, sir? And if that's the case, how do you propose to embrace um, Pierre's suggestion that there has to be fire breaks, there has to be some control in the castle uh, to, 
deal with the forestry issues. And technically, is your question directed? To either Sarah or, or Marie Pierre, who wants to take it. Okay. Sarah, do you want to take the first crack at that one? Sure. Um, so, wildland park designation does not allow for commercial forestry operations. Uh, you're right about that. Um, however, if logging is done to meet ecosystem objectives, that could fit within the management of a protected area. So that is very different than having clear-cut logging. It would be, um, it could be done in a way that would fit within protected areas management. That being said, um, there are ways to manage wildfire risk, and maybe many here could speak to this more than I could, but Waterton National Park is the same forest, and they're not clear-cutting there. So obviously, there's ways to manage wildfire risk that don't involve, don't involve clear-cut logging. Um, Maggie Pierre and I both live in the Bow Valley, and we're surrounded by forest. And I don't have clear cuts out my door. And I'm not scared about a fire. That being said, Maggie Pierre <laughs> actually lives in Banff National Park, which has its own fire issues, <laughs> which we're not going to get into. But I think that we need to think outside the box a little bit here. The clear-cut logging is not the only way to manage wildfire risk. I would never say that we should, I mean, our history of fire suppression, I think it's actually led to a lot of the problems that we have with forest health now. Um, but we need to manage it, uh, we need to plan logging a, a lot differently. If our objective is um, fire management or fire breaks or fire emulation, Logging would look a lot different on this landscape than it does right now. Thank you. Mark, yeah? Uh, yeah, I mean, for sure, using prescribed burns would be the best way to go in a wildland park. But even the national parks in Banff, especially at the, at the East Gate, they had to use uh, machinery and do logging. Not clear-cut logging, but like that last slide I showed, there was thinning. Uh, but it had to be mechanically done. You just can't go out there with a drip torch and, and start igniting you know, the forest on fire when there's all this forest to burn because then, yes, can more will burn. <laughs> and uh, so I think initially you have, you'd have to consider some form of, uh, of logging, uh, maybe not the clear cut blocks, and then having uh, anchor points so that you can conduct prescribed burns to tie in a nice area so that if there was a wildfire, a large one coming, you'd, you know, firefighters would have a chance to uh, to fight the uh, fires and prevent it from reaching all the way into the headwaters, like in 1936. Okay. If, if I could just add to that, yes. I don't think we can log our way out of fire risk. We are always going to have fire risk. And if logging is the only way that we're going to do it, we're going to sacrifice so many other forest values and virtues as to negate the value of the forest for us. If you look at the Lost Creek fire, and you think about how much logging went on in the Carbondale watershed prior to that fire, did it prevent the Lost Creek fire? No. Okay, thank you. Next question, please. Uh, my name is Matthew Coons, and uh, I'd just like to continue on this um, train of thought right now and direct this question to Mary Chair. Have you done any modeling to look at the risk of fire associated with the actual um, designated trail system within the castle? Um, you've got 
thousands of recreational vehicles uh, driving through this recreation, this uh, designated trail system. Um, and uh, I know the Lost Creek fire uh, supposedly was human cause. Um, I'm not sure if you know the exact cause. I've, I've heard that it, it could have been a, a muffler that fell off uh, one of these uh, off-highway vehicles. Um, but there must be some elevation in uh, fire risk associated with having um, a large number of vehicles and random campers um, uh, throughout the area. So uh, that's something else that needs to be considered when you're considering fire risk. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Uh, of all the human-caused fires in the province, 60 to 70 percent of these fires are caused by recreational users. So it's all the people in the backcountry uh, on dirt bikes, on quads, uh, and that's why the government gets so frightened when the fire hazard is high and they put a, fire, a complete fire ban in the forest because the people are the ones that start fires. And it's not so much the industry. I think they account maybe for 3 or 4% of fires that get started. But often the industry, they are equipped with uh, fire pumps and they can deal with it. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's all of us that enjoy you know, the forest or someone tosses a cigarette. So, yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge issue and uh, needs public education or simply banning people out of the forest when it's too dry. But is that something that you've been able to model? Uh, please use the mic. Is, is that something that you've been able to model? Um, I know that there are uh, models uh, available that could uh, look at the frequency of vehicles on that linear system and that there must be data available on um, the, the failure rate of, of mufflers or the number of uh, drivers that might be smoking how there must be some data on the frequency of that. Um, yeah, there I know there are landscape uh, models that, that are um, being used in Alberta that could, could model that sort of thing. So I'm just wondering if mm -hmm. uh, that's something that uh, has been considered. Okay, we got your question. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if the government has done that or not. I know the data exists, and there's a strong relationship when you map the roads that all the fires are within about five, uh, 500 meters from an access road or trail. So now there's not, hasn't been more modeling done into, but you could predict that there's an access road, there's a higher risk of a fire ignition. Okay, thank you. Next question, please. My name is Dawn Gray, and um, I think my question is, probably too long. Um, we all know and understand that because of the fire suppression, the forest has grown up and it does need to be thinned out in some manner, whether it's prescribed burning or, or some form of logging or whatever. But can you give us an idea of the footprint, I guess, of um, selective logging? How, how how much benefit of selective logging is um, compared to, you know, prescribed burns? And, you know, obviously it's way better than, than clear-cut logging, but is there a good enough benefit to do selective logging? Is that an option for our area to, to manage it and to keep the water shed healthy? I think that your question is to Mark Kerr. 
I was going to say Lauren should go ahead. I was oh. kind of drifting a little bit here, but thinking oh, of how he's going to answer. <laughs> well, it's a great question, and I think that's the kind of question that should be asked of the Forest Service. I'm not an expert in this, but the one thing that I would suggest is that whatever the strategy, we should do the modeling that helps us understand what the outcomes are before we actually undertake the experiment. Because then we've got a leg up on understanding whether or not that's a viable method to deal with fire risk, to, to deal with all the civiculture issues of, of, uh, of timber age and so forth. And, and in so doing, then there's a plausible way out of the dilemma that's been created by 80 plus years of forest fire prevention, which has now given us a very high risk particularly of crown fires, which are the most devastating fires of all. Sorry, I'm going to have to duck the question. Okay, who else wants to? Uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a thought, and then I'd like to contribute to that. But when we think about the impacts of logging, I think it's really important to, sorry, that fake sound noise. Um, I think it's important to realize that we're not only talking about the impacts of the actual cut log itself, it really is the road network that is associated with this logging. And, you know, especially when we're talking about an, a landscape that's already been heavily impacted by oil and gas operations, um, there's, you know, a ton of motorized recreation trails already in there. Increasing that linear disturbance density really does compound the impacts on the ecosystem. So, you know, that EPL just pointed out a way that you could have logging up a drainage with, you know, reducing the road density. Like, stuff like that is a lot easier to comprehend and swallow in this landscape because effectively it's, it's not increasing the road density if it's done right. Um, it's the number of roads. It's, that's really the part of the root of the problem is not just physically removing the trees, but building this massive road network. Okay. Yeah. I just want to add that the element of gravity that Lauren was talking about is a huge issue. Uh, if you can, maybe when slopes are, are steeper, if you can widen the buffer along the streams would be a, already a big bonus. So I think there needs to be changes in the, in the ground rules and uh, regulations and, and all that. Although, ironically, I hear that the Forest Service wants to reduce the buffer width. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Thank Thanks, you. Here. Next question, please. My name is James Moore. Um, just sitting listening to this about the roads and the necessity of logging and the problematic surrounding it, I had thought, you know, we're living in Alberta, aren't we? And isn't Alberta famous for horses? And has there been any thought to logging uh, with horses? You know, imagine the employment you would create, and it seems that that would cover all your problems with roads, with things left in the forest. I mean, maybe not entirely, but certainly uh, the use of horses for logging might, might be uh, something that would cover a lot of those bases. What, what do you all three think about that idea? Well, James, ironically, the, the Métis Nation in northeastern Alberta, I've forgotten the name of the Métis Reserve, 
logs exclusively with horses. And they do so that for two reasons. One, because it's lighter on the landscape and it provides more employment. Now, the reason that we're logging the way we are is economics, with feller bunchers and you know, reducing the number of people in the, in the forest. And that's because we're in a fiber mentality with forest management. If there was a way to look at getting more value out of our forests in terms of employment and lessening the footprint, perhaps that would be one of the viable ways of looking at how we can get some of that timber out without doing the sort of things that, that all of us have talked about and the impacts of that mechanized form of industrial activity. Anyone else like to respond to that? Well, I know that Balf, uh did try horse logging a number of years ago, and I'm not too sure why, but I don't think they were very satisfied with the process, but maybe it's a question for the people that actually tried it. Uh, and perhaps a suggestion could be heli logging, then you, you don't have any, any roads. Okay, next question, please. My name is uh, Ken Peterson. My question is kind of a simplistic one. Uh, we have an election coming up pretty quick. Is any uh, party that would uh, help the situation that anybody know of? Maybe Sarah has an idea? <laughs> yeah, I have some ideas. We have coming election for sure. Um, you know, there, there's been a lot of, it's, it's interesting because this election is the first time that I've been voting in Alberta that there's actually a campaign <laughs> like a choice to make and, it, and the outcome of the election is relatively uncertain. Um, when asked which parties will support legislative protection of the castle, no surprise that the Liberals and the NDs are in support of that designation and the PCs and the Wild Rose aren't. Um, I know that there's been a lot of talk about the Wild Rose being an interesting party on the Alberta landscape. And I have heard a lot of talk about people voting um, PC just to make sure that the Wild Rose doesn't win because they're scared of them. Um, I would like to just say that I think that voting is a very personal choice that we all make. Um, but I think it's really important to vote for the candidate who will best represent your views in the legislature, regardless of what party they sit for. Um, this, is, and this is a big election for us. This could change the face of Alberta politics. We could actually have an opposition. Um, but I, I think that, you know, if you were going to base your vote on environmental um, perspectives and, and lobbying, then, you know, it's the usual parties that stand out for you. And you can go to the party websites and look at their platforms. But I would also encourage you to contact the candidates in your writings or their assistants and ask them some questions about the lobbying and, and how they feel about that so that you can make an informed decision. Anyone else want to comment on that? Otherwise, we'll move on to the next question. Next question, please. Can I put it on? No, you have to use the microphone at the back. <laughs> Why do you need to go to the front? I once could have used the microphone. Uh, 
the front because I wanted to show them something. Well, oh, short preamble, please. Cut it in tough. My name is Klaus Um I, I do have a question moderator. Uh, I, I, my preamble pertains to this book. I want to give you the history of this book because it pertains totally to the issue at hand. Um, this is the NRCB decision report of 1993. And maybe some of you are old enough to remember that vacations on Goethe in 1992 tried to make a four-season resort at Ski Hill. And uh, the Castle Crown Wilderness Coalition was formed just two years previous to that so that, oh, that might be compromising our objectives here of protection. And uh, we had the NRCB hearings. And 200 people took part in these hearings, and the panel was attended for two weeks, and this book was produced for a million dollars. And uh, lo and behold, the decision report said that most, uh, 80 or 90 percent of that entire castle and watershed and continent should be protected. And, uh, and the, uh, the ski hill would be permitted to develop, provided this protection takes place first and water considerations are done and so on. And of course, they say, oh, well, that sounds too complicated. We're going to walk away. So anyway, um, lo and behold, in December of 1993, this book was accepted by the government. And we had a big celebration, and it was wonderful. We succeeded after three years of activity. The area was protected. Six months later, they said, oh, we made a mistake. We rescind our decision. And ever since, this million-dollar book has been sitting on the shelves. But it is the only science-based assessment of the entire area. And my question is, why do we, the public, tolerate that type of decision process? Okay, thank you. Do you have a particular panel member you want to direct your question to? I, I hope that's a rhetorical question. <laughs> but, but having said that, I'll one-up you. I go back to the hearings on forestry that the Environment Council of Alberta, previously known as the Environmental Conservation Authority, before it was emasculated by the Pine government, what they put together was essentially the overview that led us to presume that we were actually going to proceed down the road of better forest management in Alberta. And it didn't happen. And what you've described is just another failed process. And if we could bring together all of these failed processes, we could build a house out of them. Okay, does anyone else want to add to that? Very well. Um, it would be a house made of paper <laughs> to blow over in the heavy winds down here. But, anyways, <laughs> we have to go trees to make it. Maybe but, it would burn more. <laughs> I think, um, Klaus, I'm glad you brought that up tonight because I only touched on sort of the most recent history of the castle, but you know, the NRCB decision in 93 was, was a big one. And the reality, as Lauren pointed out, is that that is just one in a series of decisions that has really taken place over the last 25 years that has sort of designated the castle as a special place that needs to be protected. Um, it's interesting how easily new governments can rescind decisions that old governments make. 
And it's interesting how quickly the public will sometimes forget that they have already made a commitment to protect the castle, and they just haven't been honoring that commitment. And, you know, I've only been working for CPAWS for just over three years, and in three years I have met with three different ministers of sustainable resource development. Well, actually, that's not true. I've only met with two because Minister Knight wouldn't meet with me. Um, so, I, and every time I met with a new minister, I'm starting from square one. Like, have you heard of the castle? It was designated as a special place. Blah, 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 blah. Here's my briefing note that has a bullet point list of all the times the Alberta government has committed to protecting this area. And I hear one of two things back. I hear, it is protected. We're managing it as a forest land use zone. To which I say, when you say protected, what does that mean to you? Because I don't think we agree on the definition of protected. Um, and I've, I've also heard, oh, well, that was a long time ago. So I can't really speak to what the government decided in 1993 or 1998. Um, so I think that we have a duty to continually remind our elected officials of previous commitments for sure. But at the same time, we also it's almost like we have to reposition the argument every time because you have to convince somebody new and provide them with the background knowledge and information to come to the same conclusion that everybody else came to before them, and that is that the castle should be a park. Okay. Did you want to add anything? No, I'll show you the Okay. Next question, please. Hello. My name is Rose declare float and this question is for Lauren. Um, Lauren, can you tell us how proposed changes in the Federal Fisheries Act is going to influence what happens in the capsule area? Well, my suspicion is, is that the uh, watering down of environmental legislation, including the Federal Fisheries Act, will make it demonstrably even harder than it is now to use that legislation effectively in terms of the land uses that we see happening on the landscape. I, I fear that it will not only include impacts on big proposals like gateway pipelines and more tar sands developments, it will have a trickle-down effect to something as small as, as a crossing on a stream. But I, I would remind all of you that it often, it, it's an irony, I think, that uh, when we look at land use activities in the forest reserve, and if the oil and gas industry uh, wants to put in a, a well site or a pipeline, often they go through an environmental impact assessment process where things like federal legislation, like the Federal Fisheries Act, has an opportunity to be invoked. For some reason, you can all come to your own conclusions the timber industry seems to be exempt from that sort of rule. And yet their footprint is dramatically bigger than the oil and gas industry footprint. And so we have a broken system, which now the federal, federal government is continuing to erode even further. Okay, thank you. We're approaching the witching hour, but I sense that there are a number of people that want to ask questions. Could you please raise your hands, those of you that would like to ask questions of the panel? 
panel, would you be willing to go an extra 15 minutes? Sure. Can I just add one thing to the previous question? Yes, please do. Um, I, I just want to point out that often in Alberta we have sort of the main piece of legislation or policy, the, the Alberta Wildlife Act um, is where our provincial species at risk are listed. The Alberta Wildlife Act does not legislatively require the government to do anything other than write a species recovery plan. So it doesn't require them to protect critical habitat or to assess critical species at risk or anything like that with development. So a lot of times when we're looking at development approvals provincially, we fall back on things like the Federal Species at Risk Act and the Department of Fisheries and Oceans Act. And so these changes that are happening at the federal level have a have they they reduce the number of tools in our toolbox that we have to legislatively argue um, against a certain development because of the impact it will have on species at risk. So I just had to throw that out there. Our provincial act is weak. Thank you. Next question, please. Ms. Paul Bonner, I'm an educator here in town. It's a point of clarification rather than a question. Uh, the rumor has it is that the actual designated forestry areas were selected by the government, and the Spray Lakes um, sawmills did not want to actually log in these areas. So I'm just wondering from the panel who can tell me who made the decision to log in those areas. I can tell you, Paul, it wasn't me. <laughs> it was I don't me. Know. It wasn't me either, and I can't answer your okay, question. Who was it? Do I um, So the Crow's Nest Forest is um, managed by Sustainable Resource Development, and they basically contract Spirit Sawmills to conduct the logging. So um, SRD creates the sort of objectives, and then Spirit Sawmills creates an operational plan. Um, that's all I know for sure. And in terms of who who is the person who actually made the decision to walk here, I don't know. Because I heard from Spray Lake Sawmills that they weren't interested in logging in the castle, and then they quickly took that back in subsequent meetings. And and uh, there's, there's an interesting relationship between Spray Lake Sawmills and SRD that um, they have conversations behind closed doors I'm not privy to, so. It's really hard to fight someone that you don't know who you're fighting if you don't know who's making the decision. So True story. can I put that to somebody here to find out? Is it SRDs? Should we be addressing SRD or should we be addressing someone? I think at this point you should be addressing the ministry because SRD is the one who drafts the logging plan and they contract Spray almost to carry out that plan. So if you have an issue with the plan, you address the ministry of SRD. I'm going to have to time it up a little bit because we're going to have to be out of here at 9.15. I've just been informed. So please keep your questions short and your answers too, pal. Next question, please. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. My name is Joseph Zetuck. A quick question to the, or just an observation to the last uh, <coughs> topic that we talked about, the fisheries uh, legislation is presumably being changed. Uh, is this not an opportunity then for us to... Uh, uh, get the provincial governments to start picking up some of this uh, uh, possible uh, uh, deterioration of the uh, federal legislation. Uh, you covered in the province of Saskatchewan. They used to work with a similar situation as long ago, but I, I, I feel this may be an opportunity here to uh, lobby towards getting the 
I'll give you my perspective. If you think the federal government's weak in environmental legislation, wait till you review the Alberta stuff. <laughs> okay. Anyone else want to add to that? I think it's an opportunity, but it would be a hell of an uphill battle. Right. That's clear. Next question, please. Uh, this is, uh, of course, my name is Ward Irwin, uh, and this would be Lauren or Sarah. Uh, kind of moving away from the logging uh, a little bit, um, I just wonder if you, any of you are aware of any uh, scientific or other relevant studies on the relative impacts of quads and other off-road motorized vehicles compared to logging. And uh, I mean, logging is something we can see it's very large, it's very visible. But um, my personal experience in the Whitehurst area, I'm one of the Trans Canada, the effect of quieting and dirt biking is far greater than long. Um, and uh, so the second part of that goes to if this becomes a wildland area, and motorized activity is still allowed to uh, persist in the area, does that really do anything to uh, improve the likelihood of repairing the record? Okay. Who wants to address that first? Do you want to speak to the logging versus motorized rack? I think we have to look at it as a footprint. It, it doesn't matter, frankly, who creates the footprint. The footprint has, though, offered other land users an opportunity to use that footprint, and off-highway vehicle users have certainly jumped in to use that network of trails and roads. And so, in so doing, what, what the net effect of that is, is that none of those trail networks ever gets a chance to revegetate. Often, none of those trails are reclaimed anyway. But if they were, and then off-highway vehicles use them, it, it simply negates all of the value of that reclamation. And so, I, I can't, in my mind, separate logging from oil and gas development from off-highway vehicle activity because it all contributes a net load of sediment that in the final analysis creates the sort of effect that we're seeing in terms of declining native fish populations, which to me are one of the best metrics we have about whether or not we have a healthy watershed and a forest that's being managed effectively. In terms of... Um like motorized trails being permitted in wildland parks. Um, that kind of designation changes the government department that manages the land base, so instead of it being managed by SRD, it would be managed by Parks, Recreation, and Tourism. And they have different tools and different budgets and different abilities to enforce motorized recreation um, or anything really on their landscape. And they also have different management objectives. So. Um, you know, one of their management objectives would probably be to reclaim and decommission a lot of the illegal trails, like to just get rid of them right away. Um, I think that it has, that designation has proven effective on, in other areas of the eastern slopes in terms of being able to more effectively manage motorized recreation. And so I hear what you're saying and I have the same skeptical kind of concerns, uh, but I think it would be a better situation than what we have right now. Okay, thank you very much. 
And this has to be the last question, and a short question and short answers, please. Uh, in terms of implementing... Your name, please. Sorry, my name is Kevin Float, and this is for Sarah. In terms of implementing change by politicians, you can either work with them and help them get their common goal, or you can embarrass them in public. And if you go the latter route, you burn your bridges for the former. So as an organization, what's your trigger point from switching from recent discussions, such as been going on for decades out in the castle area without real effect, to the point where you go the other route and try and embarrass them? Uh, an example of a ladder which is very effective is what we call potato gate. Okay, we have any questions, Sarah? Um, well, fortunately, I have an executive director that tells me <laughs> when to do that. I'm, I'm usually more prone to lean towards the embarrassment action. Um, you know, to be honest, one of the things I've learned is that it really depends on who the personal politician is on the other end of, the, on the other end of that line. So, um, as an organization, we have a very positive relationship with the Department of Parks, Recreation, and Tourism. Um, but when they introduced the new Provincial Parks Act about a year and a half ago, we didn't hesitate to embarrass them. That was that act was horrible. Um, and so sometimes it depends on like what's being proposed. Sometimes it depends on who's on the other end of the line. I don't feel like we have a very productive relationship with SRD, so I'm a lot less um, worried about embarrassing them publicly. Uh, to be honest with you, half of what I say in media releases is not actually published in the media because it's a little too embarrassing for SRD, I think. So um, I'm not one. I'm not one to hold back. I think sometimes you just have to think strategically about all this stuff. And fortunately, I have a great team that I work with that helps me not shoot my mouth off too much. Thanks very much, there. And that brings us to the end of tonight's session. A round of applause, please, for our Thank you, audience. We look forward to